what is my role? What is my job? Who am I in relation to other people? Because if I don't understand who I am, how do I know how to relate to other people and be helpful? How do I know if I'm being harmful? You know, if that's too vague, if that's too fuzzy. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community that elevates designers to become empowered, educated, and effective using EQ-based tools and practices. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Dan Mall. Dan is a creative director and advisor from Philly. He's the founder and CEO of Superfriendly, a design collaborative that helps in-house teams make better digital products with design systems. Dan is the author of Pricing Design and co-founder of Arcade, a fun way to manage design tokens for enterprise teams. Enthralled by his role as husband and dad, he also finds joy writing about design and other issues on Twitter and on his industry-recognized site, danmall.me. We dive into the difference between boundaries and psychological safety, why these practices should matter to every designer, the connection between risk and creativity, tactical ways to inspire a culture of learning, as well as how to contribute and challenge the status quo for better collaboration and impact. Welcome, Dan, to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited for this. Yeah, you're welcome. So when we were talking over email and chatting, first, I was super excited to talk to you. I've been following you on Twitter for some time, and you have a lot to say in the best way. <laughs> Okay, I appreciate that. And I really value people who have a strong opinion on different topics and are eager to voice their opinion, but are also open to learning from others and taking account for other opinions. And I feel like you do that with a lot of grace. And so just thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I try, you know, because otherwise, how else can we learn if we don't have, you know, strong opinions softly held? I feel like is a, is, I say that a lot. Definitely. So yeah, so when we were chatting over email about different topics to discuss, you pointed me to a few different blog posts that you wrote, which was a great starting point. And one blog post that really caught my mind was specifically about boundaries and psychological safety. And I've yet to dive into this topic with a guest. And as a designer that has been in both psychologically safe environments and not not so psychologically safe environments and seeing the effect that it's had on my work and my career and how I can show up. I was like, yes, let's dive into this topic. So I think it would be a first great step to level set the playing field with folks to discuss like what is psychological safety. Yeah, so lots of people have talked about this. The definition that I tend to use and the resources I tend to go to are from Amy Edmondson, who's written a bunch of books and articles and things. And the way that she talks about psychological safety is the fact that it is when the environment is safe for people to take risks. 
So I like that because it's a very simple definition and it also can illuminate, right? There's a lot of room in that for what that means and how it can be executed again. So, you know, the ability for people to take risks in an environment is kind of the basis for psychological safety. So today there's obviously psychological safety in all different parts of our lives, but today we're really honing in on in the workforce and as a designer. So given the definition that you just shared, why would you say that this, I feel like you alluded to it already, but why would you say that this is important for designers? I think because the work that we do is knowledge work, right? So like it would be different if we were working in industry or if we're working on assembly lines or things like that, where like risk-taking is not rewarded. In fact, it's actually discouraged, right? Because you take risks in a formula that has the potential for disaster. But in the work that we do as designers and solving problems for people, there's so many variables, we don't have a lot of formulas. And so we have to think creatively. You know, so I, I make a connection between risk and creativity because I think that they're somehow tied. I'm not exactly sure how, but I'll say anecdotally, one of my favorite things in my own work that I've seen and working with others and in collaborations is like, when people take risks, that's when the most creative work comes out, You know, at least in, in my experience. So if people aren't free to do that, then they end up doing what is normal or what is accepted or what is usual. And that sort of fights the idea of what designers are supposed to do, which is to question the normal, to question the status quo and say like, is there a better version of this? And so I think that if designers in particular aren't prepared or aren't ready or aren't safe to go like, well, what if we did this? And for whatever reason, that idea is discouraged. How can we do our best work? How can we do work that is impactful and meaningful and, and helps people if we can't even do things differently than the way that, that they are normally done? Yeah. And diving into that a bit deeper, what are ways that... So there is like two sides of, of this coin. There is like the ICs that are possibly in that semi-psychologically safe environment or not so much so. And then there's the managers that are, or maybe they're a middle manager and they're trying to create a psychologically safe environment for their team, or possibly their manager above them is making an environment that's not the most psychologically safe. So I guess on either end for both the ICs and managers, what are things that folks can do to advocate to create a psychologically safe environment? Maybe they're, given maybe their current working area is not abiding to that. Yeah, totally. So there's a framework that I've seen. It's by, a, I think he's a counselor by name, named Timothy Clark. And he has like this, this framework for like the four stages of psychological safety. And so he says, like, you know, these are the things that build upon each other in order for there to, to be psychological safety. The first one is that people need to feel included, right? So like, that's the foundational level. If people don't feel included, you can kiss psychological safety goodbye. But if people feel included, then the next level of that is people should feel safe to learn something. And then the next level is safe to contribute. The top one is safety to challenge the, the status quo. So like all of those things kind of work together in like, if you don't feel included, if you don't feel like you can learn anything or you're able to learn anything, if you don't feel like you can contribute, like then, then you can't even get to the point where you are, you know, challenging the status quo or, or doing those things. So like, to me, a lot of those foundations have to be built and they're built on, on both ends, right? From the contributor level, right? Which is mm -hmm. level three, you know, as we talked about for an individual contributor, yeah. if they don't even feel included, they can't contribute. You can't even get to that stage in that hierarchy. So from the IC level, like those things have to be present. And I think that there's a lot of onus on managers, middle managers, high level managers, executives to really set the culture of work. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately in, in my own work and the agency that I run is that my job as the CEO is to set the culture. And I think culture has 
kind of a weird connotation in our industry because culture, I think a lot of people think of like, do you have video games in the office or like, you know, stuff like that. And what I'm learning lately is that my job as a CEO in setting culture is really about defining or establishing or modeling what is acceptable here and what is not. So, you know, what is a normal thing that we do here, right? Do we make jokes or do we not? Do we talk in this way? Or are we loud or are we quiet? Like all of those things come from somewhere. Sometimes they're, they're ground up, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, that's what happened here and evolved organically. And then other times it's mandated. So I think that it's the combination of, of both of those things. I think that managers have a lot of role in saying that's not acceptable here. So as an example, I just finished reading a, an excellent book that was recommended to me by some friends called Subtle Acts of Exclusion. And it talks about kind of rebranding the term microaggression into this, a more accurate term called Subtle Acts of Exclusion. And in that book, they talk about like how to make people feel included because by default, there's a lot of people that just feel excluded because of culture, because of stuff that's like, oh, we just joke around like that here. All right, well, how many people are we leaving out because of that? You know, with good intentions most times, but without that being felt. So I think a lot of that comes from managers a lot to say like, no, 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 we don't do that here. You know, that's not acceptable here or to encourage people. Yeah, yeah, we should do more of that that stuff here. And sometimes ICs aren't at a, a level where they feel comfortable being able to to do that or say that, you know, to others. So I think that a lot of that comes from, from management. It's always a fine line where like as, a, as an IC for my career thus far and have gotten into more of a management role in the, in the past six months with, with different ventures, it's a fine line because I completely agree with what you're saying of, and it's like in your family, like growing up, like your parents set the values that you abide by and what's good and what's bad. Did you get home after curfew or would your parents like stay out all night? And it's the same in the workplace. The manager is really defining what's okay and what's not okay. And then as a team, then you can slowly refine based on those set of values. I love to ensure that folks get the very tactical things that they can start to apply. And I'd love to dive a bit deeper on the framework that you were talking about with inclusion. So we spoke a little bit about at a high level, managers can do to really kind of like put down both in the positive and negative sense, which is amazing. And I'm really hoping all the managers listening feel empowered right now. On an IC, maybe more micro level, what are, starting with that foundational, what are things that folks can do to lean into more inclusion? Maybe they're in, during like a brainstorm or collaboration with fellow designers or in design crit or in any meetings, possibly some things that folks can start doing. Yeah. So I'm not an expert on inclusion. I don't train, you know, I'm not like a DEI person. So I'm learning a lot of this stuff. So I'm happy to share what I learned, but just to caveat it to say, you know, I don't have a lot of answers here. I, I only have the stories that I can share about it. One thing I think that we can do as I see as managers, as, you know, as people, for example, in a critique is like to assess it almost from the, from the ground up. Right. So like, what is the premise of our critique? Right. So we're going to critique some design. We'll invite all the designers by default we're already excluding people, right? Because we're basically saying like, this, this critique is for designers. Well, why not engineers? Why not product managers? Why not, you know? So I think that, that one of the first things we can do is just question our current practices to go like, 
are we doing this on purpose or are we doing this just because that's the way it's been, right? And I think that, again, designers are well-suited to that task because that's the job. The job is to go like, why is that like that, right? Like, and so I think that, that the first thing that we can do is just to go like, why is that like that? Why are our meetings this way? Why, did, you know, why do we include the people that we include? So I think the first thing is just to be curious. And I think that's one of the things that I'm learning lately is that that is a good principle of inclusion is to be curious about things, not necessarily people, you know, because like people aren't curiosities, but maybe the things that they do can be, right? So like, why did we not invite engineers to this critique? Oh, because they sit on the other side of the office. All right, well, maybe we move our critiques to a different office, you know, or maybe we move our critiques to a different meeting room so that it's more centrally located. So I think there are small things that we can do like that that add up to considering including more people than we actually normally do. So to me, that's the first step is just kind of looking at like, why do we do this? And is that is that the right thing to do here? You know, and by default, we go like, let's just include more people. You know, maybe that's a good kind of place to start. Yeah. I love how we're touching on so many little micro topics within this umbrella of, of psychological safety. And curiosity really is the gateway to open up more self-awareness, more interaction, more connection, more vulnerability, rather than like judgment and, and exclusion and all of that stuff. So thank you for highlighting that. Continuing on with a bit more tactical aspects of this framework. So first we had inclusion. And second, we have, what was the second one that you said? Safety to learn. So do people feel like they can learn things? So would you say that that's in a a similar vein as inclusion or from a both IC and manager perspective, anything that folks could do or should do when thinking about this aspect of psychological safety? Yeah, same thing that I'll say there, kind of a similar thing is like, let's question our premises on that. And because they're foundational, they're systemic to the way that we hire even, right? So like, Mm -hmm. think about the way that we interview, you know, we'll interview somebody for a job, you know, and do they know how to write React code that does this and this and this? If the answer is no, we go, oh, they're not right for the job. So like, okay, well, you know, right out of the gate, and I'm sure that this isn't all organizations I'm talking about, but some right out of the gate, we're basically saying, there is not room for someone to learn things here. They have to learn it before they get here. And then they have to apply the skills that they already have here. So that already sends a signal that like, oh, no, no, our expectation is that no one is supposed to learn here. They're already supposed to have the skills. So what does that say to the, all the people who we're interviewing? It says like, you better have the skills then. You better not be learning anything here, which means, well, where does learning take place? Well, learning takes place at home, on the side, you know, on the weekends, I have to do this outside of my job. So even the, the culture of learning with a lot of teams doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So we penalize people, sometimes explicitly, sometimes, sometimes as an implication, we penalize people for going like, oh, you don't know that? Well, you're bad at your job then. So we have to turn that around. We have to flip that into how do we encourage people for learning something, right? Like maybe that means instituting a practice of lunch and learns or snack and learn. We, we do snack and learns at my company because everybody's on different time zones. So lunch isn't the same time for everybody. So, you know, we do that once a month. And so we, we try to like encourage that idea. I remember one of the previous jobs that I had, I was trying to learn something and I didn't know it. And one of my coworkers said like, okay, every day from four to 5 p.m. at the end of our day, I want you to come to my desk and I'm going to teach it to you. And for three months, he taught it to me. For three months, I went to his desk. Like we had class 
And that was just part of the culture. That was part of work. And so that not only sent a signal to me, but to everybody else that like, that's acceptable here, right? That's okay for us to do. No one's going to penalize anyone. No one is going to be, you know, scolded for that. It's actually a good thing. So even things as small as that can go a long way to reinforcing the idea that that's acceptable. We can do that here. It's safe to learn. No one's going to judge you for not knowing something. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting like flashbacks to other jobs earlier on in my career where I remember one of the first jobs that I had in school, in college, and I went to a school at UIUC in Champaign and I was working in the athletic department and making, I was a graphic designer major and was making logos and posters for the basketball games the football games, all of that stuff. And I remember my manager at the time had me doing all these lynda.com <laughs> tutorials and really encouraged me to know, take most of the time of the working time that I was getting paid hourly <laughs> and spend this time learning and growing. This is the way that you'll be able to progress in your career. And that's having so cool. that, it was amazing. And that's like how I learned Photoshop and Illustrator and all these really core things that more when I was wore that graphic design hat was uh, much more valuable, but for personal projects, it's definitely kept its, its way in there. But fostering that culture, whether it be more of from a tops down or peer to peer approach. I love that you highlighted that. So thank you. Yeah, sure. I, I love that story because like just something as simple as saying like, we have a lynda.com account. Like even that small gesture says to everybody like, oh, I'm encouraged to learn here. It's such a simple thing, but a lot of companies don't have that kind of thing, you know, in their workplace. They don't have that kind of capacity. Like, so, you know, one very actionable step you can do is like pay for a Lynda.com account or a Skillshare account or something, even if no one uses it, right? It's worth the money to just send the signal to all of your employees or team that like, we encourage this kind of thing to happen here. You know, even better if you go, all right, everyone, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. every Friday is dedicated for learning. You know, like things like that start to start to move the, the needle on, you know, do we encourage that kind of thing to happen here? Yeah, which is so important. It's so important because under that is, okay, so then people feel comfortable to grow and then they feel more also transparent to talk about that growth and collaborate and learn from each other and which then fosters a much more collaborative and transparent working environment and and all that stuff. I want to continue on with our our path and then switch gears a little bit. But so the last element of the psychological safety <laughs> I'm envisioning a pyramid <laughs> is um, what was the last one that you mentioned? Oh so there's two more, right? So the, the oh, third one is Thank you. safety to contribute. Okay. And then the last one is safety to challenge the status quo. So yeah, so that that third layer is like that people feel like, oh, I can I can add to this, I can contribute to this. Which makes complete sense based on how our conversation naturally unfolded. And I feel like these are naturally already building on each other from a, a tactical recommendation perspective. And I'm happy to group these last two, but would you say there's any tactical things that folks could get started on to possibly encourage their voice and possibly from a positive way or standing up against the status quo? I think one very small but powerful thing is to encourage someone who's already doing that, right? Because a lot of times that just goes unnoticed. It's just like, yeah, some people are contributing, some people are learning. No one says anything about it. You know, so like 
One thing that, and this can happen from anyone, and I see can do this, a manager can do this, the CEO can do this, the intern can do this, but just to encourage someone publicly, like, that was really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Because right? even that thing kind of sends the signal that like, oh, that was good. I forget where I read this recently, but came across this idea that when you want people to continue doing a thing, you praise. And when you want people to stop doing a thing, you punish. Right. So like if you want people to keep contributing, well, encourage the contribution. So as people do that, they they get this dopamine hit of like, oh, I was rewarded for that thing. You know, and so fine, I'll keep doing that if I want to keep getting rewarded. So I think a lot of that is what series of rewards, what system of rewards do you have in place? And something as small as a compliment could be very powerful. Something as small as just a kind word can be very powerful. I'm not even talking about like raises or like bonuses, or, you know, that's those are massive incentives. But something as small as, you know, somebody recognizing your work, you know, that goes a long way for the person, for the individual, but also for the culture of the group as to like, oh, they got praise for doing that. Well, I'm going to do more of that then too. And then that kind of adds to that contribution culture. We're going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from design to be design to be is excited to offer design to be training an eight-week remote design EQ training program. We are bringing together the next generation of leading designers who seek to become more effective in their role and ultimately craft a career that is filled with meaning and purpose. We are fusing authentic community, inspirational speakers, and actionable techniques to uplevel your design career. Head to designtobe.com slash training to learn more and apply. Applications are now open and close April 15th, but students will be accepted on a rolling basis, so be sure to apply early to secure your spot. Now, back to the show. The praises and the words of kindness, I feel like it's easy to gloss over, but it goes so far. Like the words that are lifting each other up or that are lightly tearing each other down hits home. It's so much more than I feel like what people realize. Like, oh, we're just talking over Zoom. (laughs) What do you mean? And then we're just going on to our next meeting and the next meeting and we have half hour meetings all day and it doesn't matter. It's fine. But each word that comes out of our mouth holds a weight and each person receives that weight in a different way. I was lucky to work with a creative director early in my career. And the first thing that he would do was just praise. And like, it felt ingenuine. It felt like, oh, I know that he's doing this as part of his formula, but it didn't matter because it still felt good. Like when I was receiving that praise, (laughs) I was like, even though I know what you're doing, it feels great. Like, it's great that somebody says like, you know, Dan, you did a really great job on that design, or you did a really great job on that presentation. And that was awesome. And what you did, like, and it's taken me a while to learn that practice. I'm not, I'm not generally like, you know, words of affirmation kind of guy. Like, yeah, I don't compliment often. It's not that I hold those back, you know, intentionally. It's just that I'm not, I don't do that naturally. So I'm trying to like practice that more intentionally. But you know, when people receive criticism, when a hundred people say a good thing and then one person says a bad thing, we just latch onto that one bad thing, right? Like I do that all the time, you know? And so what do we do to combat that? Well, instead of a hundred compliments then to combat the one, let's, let's shower that person with a thousand because maybe the thousand will drown out the one. Like, so I forget where I read this lately too, that like, you don't run out of that stuff. You don't run out of compliment. You don't, there's no well that like runs dry 
Mm-hmm. If you're like, oh, I'm out of compliments for today, like it keeps filling up. So why not continue to dole those out? Like there's no cost to it. So that's a thing that I think like just those small things, they go such a long way. Yeah. Beautiful. And the I'm just envisioning this huge well now. And it really does keep on filling. It really does keep on filling. So I want to switch gears a little bit to focus on the other side of the conversation that we're talking about with psychological safety is boundaries. And I love that when we were figuring out the topic for today, uh, focusing on both of those, because they're so related. And I feel like what we've talked about thus far is a, a lot of more so like what you can do to give and show up. And on the flip side of that, you can, similar to the, <laughs> the well of kindness, sometimes, yes, it is an infinite well, but sometimes your well needs a break. and maybe you're tired of scooping out of the well your arm got tired so in terms of helping foster a psychologically safe environment for yourself or for your team how would you say boundaries fits into that so i learned boundaries by reading a book by uh, dr henry cloud who's a psychologist and a counselor and like the way that he defines boundaries is like he says boundaries define us right the boundary defines who you are so a boundary defines where you stop and somebody else begins. You know, it's such a simple idea, but a lot of people, you know, certainly I do have trouble with that idea, right? Because you go too far and then you're rigid and you're closed and you're cold and you're closed off to everybody else. If you go not far enough, then you sort of take on other people's feelings and responsibilities and you bear the weight of that. And the bur- so like the defining boundary is knowing where you stop and knowing where other people begin. And one of the things that he says a lot in, in the book is like, I am responsible to others, but not for others. And I was like, oh man, like what a deep idea. You know, it took me years <laughs> to like figure out what that meant and kind of practice that, you know, in my relationships is like, I often feel the need to caretake people, you know, and I often feel the need to like be responsible for them, especially in my role as like a manager or a director or a, you know, a CEO. Like I feel responsibility for people. And sometimes that's appropriate and other times it's not. And all of them have to do with boundaries. You know, we're like, what is my role? What is my job? Who am I in relation to other people? Because if I don't understand who I am, how do I know how to relate to other people and be helpful? How do I know if I'm being harmful? You know, if that's too vague, if that's too fuzzy. So I love the ideas of boundaries. It's, it's a lot of personal work, you know, to establish and hold firm to boundaries, but I think it's, it's worthwhile work for sure. Yeah. And I love that we did these topics together because I feel like this also very much ties back into having clarity of your own values and like what is right and what is wrong. (laughs) And by having an awareness of your own values, then you can then understand, okay, this is a boundary for me, or this is where I need to draw the line for how I can show up or, oh, this is too much or, oh, this is not enough. I see those as as complementary concepts, the idea of psychological safety and boundaries, because I think psychological safety is a lot about others. And I think that boundaries are a lot about safety for yourself, right? So like, like when you think about bound the boundaries of your property or of your house or of your apartment or, you know, wherever you live, you have a door so that other people can't get in. Dangerous people can't get in and you are safe in your property, whatever that is, that's your bedroom, that's your apartment, that's your house, that's your neighborhood, you know, whatever those boundaries are, like boundaries are a fence. And they're as much to keep other people out as they are to keep you in and know where what your stuff is, so that you can be safe, right? Because like, and, and one of the stories that I tell a lot when we talk about like psychological safety and boundaries, 
is like when you're on a plane, you know, they say in case of emergencies, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling, secure your own first before helping somebody else with theirs. And that's not to be selfish, right? It's to know that like, you're okay too. Like you're okay first, you know, before you can help others. Because if you're not well, how can you help other people be well? If you're losing oxygen, how can you help somebody else? But if you are, if you're safe, if you're good, you know, then you can help a lot more people in that. So they're totally related to me because they're both about safety, but to whom, you know, and that's how they work together. So that's, that's why to me, I can't separate the two ideas. You know, that's why when we talked about it initially, like boundaries and psychological safety, they go hand in hand. It feels like you can't talk about one without talking about the other. I don't know if anyone else listening is getting the chills, but I'm getting the chills. <laughs> and I've talked about these topics and have invested in this a lot throughout both personally and in my in my own career for my own design growth. And I've never, I, I'm a very visual learner. And I literally, Dan, I see this fence and I see this house and I have my fence. And then in my yard is my psychologically safe yard. I don't know yes. if anyone else is seeing their very like boundary nice house with their nice yard. First, thank you. That was an amazing definition. And I hope that it made these concepts a lot more tangible for folks. Because I feel like one tricky thing with emotional intelligence, kind of zooming out a bit, I feel like a tricky thing with emotional intelligence and diving into these topics is, okay, what does this mean for me? And how can I approach this? This feels kind of vague, kind of intimidating. And one of the things that I love most about this podcast is diving into these topics with excellent guests as yourself, where we can make it super practical and approachable for folks. So diving in a bit deeper with the work of boundaries and tying it back into being a designer, possibly sharing maybe like a personal example of when you were interacting with maybe a teammate or a stakeholder or whomever, where possibly you had to like check yourself of, okay, I need to come back to my boundaries or I maybe I took on <laughs> their emotions or ways that folks can keep their own selves accountable to keep track of or keep their boundaries in check. Yeah. So I don't know how much this relates to other people. I might be just getting into my personal stuff and my personal issues and triggers and stuff, but like I don't do well when other people try to make me feel guilty, right? Like I take that on a lot. And I think that good managers don't do it and bad managers do sometimes without realizing it, right? So I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's malicious, you know, all the time. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's a technique and other times it's not. But like one of the things that I've had to develop a thick skin against is, is when someone tries to make me feel guilty for something. Cause then I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Right. So like, Hey Dan, can you have this done by the end of today? And I'm like, internally, I'm like, I don't think so. It's like four o'clock and end of the day is like an hour from now, but they're like, well, we really need this done by the end of today. And they might not even be trying to make me feel guilty, but sometimes I feel guilty. Like, Oh, but I'm letting them down. If I don't do, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll have it done by the end of the day. And you know, Pretty soon the end of the day is like four o'clock or five o'clock or seven o'clock or like, oh, I'll just eat dinner and then I'll finish it up. And then all of a sudden I'm working till midnight on this thing. I didn't even want to do that, but it was that, that like, I didn't want to let somebody else down. I'm losing my boundary and bleeding into theirs because I didn't want to let them down. So what do we do to correct that? Well, if you kind of reverse that whole scenario, a lot of that is about expectation setting and about accountability, right? So like to me, all these topics fit, you know, fit together which is why like, it feels like we're dancing from topic to topic, but they're all, you know, they're all part of the same so thing. Yeah. So like, so to me, expectation setting is way before that happens, you know, in the morning, 
I might say to somebody, or, you know, when I first start that job, I might say to everybody, Hey, it's really important to me that I leave at five o'clock every day because whatever, because I have kids and a wife to get home to, because I just don't want to be at work at five. It doesn't matter what the reasons are. Those are my, my boundaries. And then part of it is up to me to recognize that and also to stick to that. Because if everybody sees me hanging out until six or seven every day, well, then they're going to think that I don't stick to my own boundaries and they're going to feel free to come into that too. Mm -hmm. So part of it is just me being accountable to myself to say like, if I don't want people to encroach on that, I can't encroach on that on myself either because otherwise I'm signaling that too. Now, if I have good reasons for doing that, then cool. But I also have to make sure that I stick to that too. So part of that accountability and part of the thing that I learned to do with people is to to give three answers, right? So three answers to commitment. When somebody says like, can you get this done by the end of today? There are three answers typically to that. And most people are familiar with two and less familiar with the third. So I'll share the third. So the, the first answer is yes. That's an easy one. Can you do this by the end of today? Yeah, sure. The second answer is also easy. Can you do this by the end of today? No. Mm -hmm. The third answer, though, is one that people aren't trained on. And like, it took me a while to learn this, which is you commit to commit. So no, I can't have it done by the end of today, but I can have it for you tomorrow morning. Right? So like, I'm not committing to what you're asking me to do, but I'm committing to something else. Is that okay with you now? Right. So that's a, a technique that I use all the time. It helps me uphold my boundaries, but I'm not letting somebody down because I'm letting them know what I can and, and what I am willing to do for them. So I do that all the time, commit to commit. No, I can't do it right now, but I can have it done by the end of the week. Is that acceptable? And if the answer is no, well, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to, to stretch past my boundaries on this one. Whereas in another one, I might be, but on this one, I'm not. And I've got to be okay with what that brings up for me, you know, six of that. So I put a lot there. Let me, let me stop there and see what you think of all that. I want to highlight a few things that, that you said. So one that I feel like is so important with that third point is asking, what do you think? And having those small words at the end of that statement gives the person who made that request in the first place an opportunity to then also feel safe in that interaction and also voice their opinion. Because if you said, I can't do it now, but I'm going to get it done at nine the next day. And that would just close the interaction <laughs> and would just stop it and not give that other person who you're interacting with a space where they feel like they're included. I love that you you highlighted that part. That's been a, a huge piece for me in authentic communication. And that's the other piece that I wanted to highlight. I feel like you've been talking about all these pieces, but in a, in a way by setting these boundaries, okay, this is what I need to express of what's true for me is uh, at its core is a practice of authenticity and also like building on that just a bit higher is like communication. So do you feel confident in what you're saying? And I remember a huge difficulty for me earlier on in my career was voicing my opinion. I was so nervous <laughs> of saying what I needed to say. Was I going to get judged? Was I going to get all of that? But I love the third example <laughs> that you said. And I feel like it's such a practical and approachable techniques that I hope that folks can start applying to their day-to-day. -day. Can I add a thing to that too? Please, please. So one of the things that I learned in the, in the boundaries book was that there's different kinds of boundaries and some are healthy and some are unhealthy. And unhealthy boundaries look like, you know, there's, there's two phrases that Henry Cloud gives for it. One is soft boundaries, spongy boundaries, he calls them, right? Which is like, which is the idea that like, you don't quite know, like you kind of give everywhere, 
you know, and so people don't know how to interact with you because you don't know how to interact with yourself. You know, you don't know where to give and, and where to take. And like part of his definition for boundaries is, you know, in addition to defining you and defining me and, you know, the fence is like, you decide what you let in and what you keep out, right? So some things keep out and some things you let in, but that you're in control of that. So spongy boundaries mean like just about everything gets in, you know, like you're not really in control of it. The other way that's also unhealthy is rigid boundaries, right? So when you're just like, when nothing gets in and like people are like, well, I, I mean, I guess, you know, like, I don't know how to interact <laughs> with you. And both of those are unhealthy in their own way. And the, the version that he says is healthy is flexible boundaries where some things get in and some things stay out, but you're in control of that. You make the decisions about that. And so, you know, with the point that you made about like adding like, well, what do you think? That adds the flexibility because if it was just, no, I can't do it now. I'll do it by, by tomorrow morning. It's like, well, so then I just left my product manager. I just took them hostage, right? Like it's either take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. That's not flexible at all. You know, that's rigidity. And so that's an unhealthy version of boundaries, even though some people go like, no, no, I held my ground, but you weren't flexible about it though. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can be flexible without being soft. You can be flexible without being spongy. And so they're like, these are where my boundaries are. Would you like to have a conversation about us changing those th- two things together? Like that allows, you know, like, like you were mentioning, that allows the ability to go like, oh, this is a conversation now. It's not you walking all over me. It's not me walking all over you. We're working on this stuff together. We can come to a good agreement together and ideally come up with options that maybe neither of us would have come up with on our own. And I think this is why I like talking about this stuff to designers, because I think designers are most well-suited to understand and practice these things. Because again, part of our jobs is to like assess things and figure out and communicate and like, you know, all the things that we're already naturally good at, you know, so like adding the like, how do we do this with our lives as opposed to the pixels that we push or the, the ink colors that we print? You know, it feels like it's the same process. Definitely. And as you were talking, like the flexibility or the like too fluid or too rigid, the house metaphor keeps coming back up for me or where I'm like envisioning the door where we choose to open a door and like that's the flexible boundaries and a house is not made. There's a door that we choose and there's windows that we choose to open or close And there's not just doors and windows that automatically open and close whenever. And it's not also not a prison, right? So you're not just trapped inside and nobody can get in. You can't even get out. That like when it's too rigid, that's a prison, you know, and that's not healthy for you either. So that flexibility is so key. So we're going to start wrapping things up. I feel like we could talk about this topic for a lot longer. So maybe we'll have a round two at some point, but zooming out a bit. So Both of these topics really feed into a higher level of emotional intelligence or EQ. And I feel like we've danced around this question a lot, but why would you say that it's important for designers to invest in their emotional intelligence? So I used to teach at design school. I used to to run an apprenticeship and I used to teach designers and engineers like how to do this. And one of the things that I realized was like, no matter how much I taught about the craft part like people were still not being good at work. Like, and so I started developing these concepts. I first piloted it in a, in a talk, in a conference talk that I gave. And the talk was called How to Be Good at Work, right? And there's some wordplay in there about like how to be good at work, but how, to, how, to, how for you to be good, you know, with yourself at work. And I think that that's the thing that makes people really good at, at design, you know, at, at the very least, you know, not other things too. But how to be a good designer is almost never, especially at some level, like once you get past kind of an intermediate level, it's not about the pixels that you push anymore. Like it's no longer about how well you are directed that thing or how well like the, the motion looks like. Those things are important for sure. I'm not discrediting those, 
But at some level, what makes you good at work, and I'll, I'll speak personally, the people that I like working with aren't just the people who are excellent at what they do. It's people who you can work with. It's people who are like, who know how to be accountable, who can meet a deadline, who can tell you when they're going to be late. Like not people who are perfect, not people who don't mess up. So like investing in EQ, investing in your emotional intelligence, investing in like being good with yourself, relating to others well, that's part of the job. Like I forget who said this, but like the idea that these are soft skills, like I hate that phrase because it treats it as optional and it treats it as like, oh no, no, the real skills are about how good of a graphic designer you are. No, it's not, <laughs> not at all. And, and I've heard it rebranded to power skills or core skills. And I'm like, yeah, like that's what it is. Like work on your core skills. It's like when you work your body out, if you don't have a strong core, it doesn't matter how much you can lift, your back's going to hurt because your core is soft. So working on your core is really important. So what does that mean for a designer? Well, your core is accountability. Your core is how you communicate well with others. Your core is meeting those deadlines. It's, you know, it's being a responsible person. That's what people love working with, you know, of course, built on top of your craft, but like at some point craft only goes so far, you know, and there have been many people that, you know, at my agency, we have not hired them, even though they're excellent graphic designers, art directors, you know, so good at their crafts but just divas, like you can't get a hold of them. They do whatever they want. It's like, well, I mean, I guess, sure. And we just don't work with them because it sucks to work with them. It sucks. The talent level is very high, but to work with them sucks. So if I had to choose, I would rather work with someone who was mediocre at the skills, but really communicative, always told you what the, you know, sets expectations well. Even better if you're excellent at your craft and excellent at the core skills, right? But And I don't think that there's anybody that is perfect at those, but I think those are worthy pursuits to go like, I'm going to work on my core skills as much as I'm going to work on my typography game or, you know, or any of those kinds of things. So I think it's super important to work. It is the other half, you know, the craft is only half. And then the other half is how well that you, you relate as a person, as a teammate, as a collaborator. Thank you. And I love your, like, I, of course, am super passionate about this topic, but I love your passion around this space as well. And I love the the shift of talking about it as as core skills because soft skills has this like fluffy, not so positive connotation. The last thing that I'll ask and leave folks with, if you could ask one thing of the audience in relation to boundaries and psychological safety, what would it be? I think it would be to consider others. Because I think that we do that too little, like in the world. I mean, like speaking globally now, right? There's just been too many people that haven't been considered for so long. And I think part of what sucks about the world is that that's true. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's how it's been. And that's where I get, you know, on my soapbox and I go like designers, just because it's, it's, that's how it's been. Our jobs are to go like, yeah, but was, is it good that way though? I think that we should be leading the charge on that stuff. Like I would love to see more designers in, you know, social causes and politics and all that stuff, like at a global level, but at a local level too, like we can do that just by going like, you know, the person who's sitting next to you or on a Zoom call that doesn't talk much, you know, maybe you talk to them on the side and say like, hey, is there, can I like help you talk more if you would like to do that? You know, just being more cognizant of that kind of stuff rather than like, yeah, I don't know, that person's just quiet. Like that's a judgment that might not be fully informed. So I guess all to say, you know, I'm a little bit on the spot here, so I'm, I'm dancing around it, but I think, <laughs> I think, you know, consider others more because I think that that will allow it to be safer for somebody else. And then hopefully what that leads to is you thinking about what safety looks like for you too, 
and what you need out of that. So that if you can look at look for it for others, you can look for it for yourself too. And then I think everybody gets better that way. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dan, and your practical advice and your inspiration and words of wisdom. It was a joy to talk with you today. Well, likewise, thank you for giving me the, the chance to talk to you about it. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you're curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E dot com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.